Thank you for joining us for the lessons from First Naz Podcast. I am in a sermon series looking at the stories of the life of Samuel, the prophet. And Samuel is a, is a transitional character in the nation of Israel. All of that information, I see a lot of people taking pictures of the, of the dates and times for the event. All of that information is available to you on our website, firstnaz.com. I've lost my sermon. I've lost my sermon for the week. Okay, that's today's date. Excellent. If you're here for the first time because of VBS, or if you're just here for the first time because you happened upon us today, God bless you. Welcome. Um, I am always the scattered, just as a word of warning. Uh, we, but the people here are great. And, and so, you're, you are in a great place. I'm preaching from the life of Samuel the prophet this morning. Samuel is this transitional character in the, the nation of Israel. He, he is the kingmaker. He is the first of the, uh, he is the last of the judges of Israel. So the plan for God when, for God's people when they had come out of the promised land was that God would be their king and that there would be a human judge that would kind of facilitate things around around the nation of Israel and provide justice and speak for God, and then that there would, uh, that God would be their king. And, and so Samuel is the last of the judges, and then the people say, no, we don't want that anymore, we want a king. And Samuel appoints, he, he discovers, he, he finds, and he anoints the first kings of Israel. And so he's really a transitional character in the nation of Israel, but in the whole arc of Scripture, in the whole, the whole way we look at the Bible, what happens in the life of Samuel changes how we read Scripture, not just until Jesus, but even beyond. And so Samuel is a really important character in the Bible, and, and I'm looking at stories from his life. And today I'm looking at a story that covers, actually, I'm covering four chapters today. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell the story, I'm going to summarize. I'm going to just give you the high points, and I'm, go, I'm not going to read it all, I'm going to look at it. Before we get into the story that begins in 1 Samuel chapter 4, I need to give you a little bit of background. You need to know, before we get to this, you need to know about the Ark of the Covenant. This is important. The Ark of the Covenant. If you've read through the Old Testament, you've heard about the Ark of the Covenant, uh, you, you may have, if you've watched Indiana Jones, he's looking for the Raider or the Lost Ark, right? I, I don't think it exists anymore. I think it's a foolish errand. But he's, uh, the, the Ark is this important piece of furniture. Uh, so in, in ancient times, the way that worship worked, the way that worshiping gods worked was that most gods had a temple, built out of stone or wood somewhere, and in that temple somewhere there was a statue of that God. And the people worshiped that statue. It was God. That was their God. It did, that God didn't move. That God, that God was there. And, and so when God brought the people of, of Israel out of Egypt, they were slaves in Egypt, God brought them out in the book of Exodus, God tells the people how they are supposed to worship him. 
And the center of their worship, the, the, the way that they are supposed to worship, centers around the Ark of the Covenant. And this is kind of just like an artist's rendition, an idea of what the Ark of the Covenant may have looked like. It was a box. It was made out of wood, but it was covered with gold. And it was about two and a half feet wide, or tall, by two and a half feet wide, by a little less than four feet long. And it, inside it, inside it, it, it was supposed to have the stone tablets that Moses walked down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments on it. And it was supposed to have a jar of manna, the mysterious bread that appeared every morning during the, the Exodus. And it was supposed to have the staff that Aaron, the priest, carried around with him when he wandered through the desert with the people. And it, that staff God used miraculously to show that, that Aaron was his chosen priest. So those things were inside of it. But most important is what's on top of the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark of the Covenant, you can see there's two figures, and those are statues of angels. Cherubim is the uh, Bible word for that type of angel. And those angels, they're worshiping, or they're, they're bent toward each other. Some renditions, some, some people think that the angels were using their wings to cover their eyes, to not look at what was in between them. And in between them, in between them, you can see, is nothing. Uh, because remember, in the Ten Commandments, the, the people of Israel were commanded to not make an image and worship it. They were commanded to not make a statue of God and say, this is God, we worship this. And so, this is where God is, in between the, worship, in between the worshiping angels. He's, that is God's spot. And it's called the mercy seat. They call it the mercy seat. And so that, the Ark of the Covenant, it was intentionally mobile. It was intentionally, it was, it was supposed to be um, portable. It, it sat, the, the worship of God, it didn't happen, God, God laid it out so it didn't happen in a temple that was built out of stone. It happened in a tent, a tent that was movable. They called it the tabernacle. And the tent was broken up into spaces so there was a big space and smaller space, smaller space inside of that, smaller space inside of that. There's, there's the holy place, and then inside the holy place, in the, the inner sanctum of the temple, is the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant sat. And one time a year, one time a year, a priest would go in to where the Holy of Holies was. And it was so holy, so filled with God's presence, that people were afraid to go into it. In fact, the, the story goes that when the priest would go into it once a year, they would put bells around his, the, the, his garment and a rope around his ankle. And if the bells stopped ringing, they'd pull his dead body out because they were afraid that the presence of God might strike this man dead for going into the holy, perfect presence of God. And so that's how the Israelites were supposed to worship their God. And when we get to the stories of Samuel, we're about 500 years after, after the Exodus, after God had, had miraculously freed his people from Egypt. And, and at that time, the, the tabernacle sat in a place called Shiloh. It was in Shiloh. And, and that's where it is. So you, when you kind of think about this, you, you have like the Ark of the Covenant that is inside the Holy of Holies, inside the holy place, inside the inner court, inside the tabernacle, at Shiloh. 
And so to worship God, to get to God's presence, it was, it was a challenge. It was a sacrifice. You had to, people from every corner of, of Israel had to travel to that place. And then even then they couldn't get to the inner sanctum, right? The holy of holies. And it was only, you know, one special person. And so, that's what it meant to worship God in those days. Today's story that I'm looking at, it begins in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And in 1 Samuel chapter 4, if you want to follow along, you're welcome to. I'm just going to read a verse here and there. And so, if, if you trust me, you can just follow along on the screen. But you might want to open the Bible on your phones in case you don't trust me. Um, Steve, Steve's going for his Bible. First Samuel chapter 4 begins with the Philistines, the, the major population group that was also in the promised land, beating up on the Israelites. The nation of Israel, they were getting, they were getting whooped in battle. And so the, the leaders of Israel, they gather together on the sideline of the battlefield and they say, why are we getting beat up on? And they have this great idea. They think, okay, let's go and get the Ark of the Covenant. And let's bring the Ark of the Covenant to the battlefield. And then God will obviously give us victory, right? Because we'll have the Ark of the Covenant here. And we read what it says in 1 Samuel 4, verses 4 and 5. It says, so they, went, they sent men to Shiloh to bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, Eli was the priest at that time, uh, who lived in Shiloh, and his sons Hophni and Phinehas, if you're just tuning in, they were scoundrels. They were bad, bad people. Uh, they, were, they were not to be trusted, but here they are, showing up again. And uh, so the sons of Eli were also with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When all the Israelites saw the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord coming into the camp, their shout of joy was so loud it made the ground shake. The Philistines catch wind of this. They hear, they, they hear the people screaming and shouting and they feel the earth shaking, right? And then they, they start, they're afraid. They're afraid. They hear that the Ark of the Covenant is in the Israelite camp. And so they, they're terrified. And they have a really fitful night of sleep. It's, they're not fighting right at that second. But the next day they go to war. The next day they go to, the war, to war and the Philistines, they are terrified the Israelites have brought their God to the battlefield. How could they have any hope of beating the Israelites if the Ark of the Covenant is right there, right? And so they wake up, they start fighting, and the Philistines totally destroy the Israelites that day. The Bible says 30,000 Israelite troops in one day. Not just 30,000 Israelite troops. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, dead. Not just 30,000 troops dead, not just Hophni and Phinehas. The Philistines come and they take the Ark of the Covenant. The news is so shocking. It's so shocking that when Eli the priest, he hears it, he's an old man, he's sitting in the tabernacle. He hears the news that his sons have died, that the Ark of the Covenant has been taken. He falls over backward in his chair, breaks his neck, and dies. This is a tragic end to, to Eli and his sons and this period of history 
for the nation of Israel. The rest of chapter 4 tells the story of one grandson of Eli who is born and turns out to not be all that bad. And then the Philistines have the Ark of the Covenant. And in chapter 5, we read about it being taken, the, the Ark of the Covenant is taken to a city called Ashdod. And in Ashdod, it's put in a temple because ancient worship happened in a temple. It, it's put in the temple of Dagon. The god, his name is Dagon. And Dagon is a statue there standing in his temple because everybody knows in, in the ancient world that's how you worship God, not with an empty place between two angels. That's just weird. But Dagon is, is there. And, and uh, the story is, is a little bit humorous at the beginning of chapter 5, the way that it happens. Because the priests of Dagon, they tuck the Ark of the Covenant in next to, to Dagon. And, and at night, they, they say goodnight to Dagon. They close the doors. They go to bed. They wake up in the morning. And all of a sudden, Dagon has fallen on his face. And he's, he's standing face down in front of, of the Ark of the Covenant. And, uh, and so <laughs> the priests do as priests do, and they prop up their false god, and they, they leave him there, and they have a pretty normal day. Then they go to bed the next night, and when they wake up the next morning, lo and behold, Dagon, down on the ground in front of the Ark of the Covenant. This time, not content to just have Dagon laying face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. The, the hands and head of the statue of Dagon have broken off, and they are sitting neatly in the doorway of the temple of Dagon. The trouble with Dagon starts a whole, a whole series of unfortunate events. And, and from then on, Anywhere the Ark of the Covenant goes among the Philistines, it is, it is plagued. It is plagued with rats that apparently are carrying disease. People are dying everywhere it goes. And then the people start growing tumors. They have tumors on them. And so the, the Ark of the Covenant, it's, it starts out in Ashdod, and then the, the rulers of the Philistines, they have a great idea. They say, let's move it to the city of Gath. And so they take it to Gath. And the Gathians immediately say, we don't want that thing here. And so they say, let's move it to Ekron. And then in chapter 5, verse 10, we pick up with it. It says, so they sent the ark of God to the town of Ekron. But when the people of Ekron saw it coming, they cried out, they are bringing the ark of the God of Israel here to kill us too. The people summoned the Philistine rulers again and begged them, please send the ark of the God of Israel back to its own country or it will kill us all. For the deadly plague from God had already begun and great fear was sweeping across the town. Those who didn't die were afflicted with tumors and the cry from the town rose to heaven. And so in chapter 6, we read about the plans for, for sending the Ark of God back to the Israelites. And, you know, mail service wasn't what it is today. They, they, they couldn't figure out what to do. And so they, they gathered together their, their priests and their diviners, it says. The Philistine priests and the diviners get together, and they figure out the plan is send it back with gifts. Just send it back with whatever you do, 
gifts. Gifts are the, the way to do it. And so what do you send as gifts when you've been plagued with tumors and rats? You send golden tumors and golden rats. And so they uh, made a box and they made five golden tumors to represent the five Philistine uh, rulers and five golden rats. And they put them in the box and then uh, it needed to be with the Ark of the Covenant, the box of rats and tumors, uh, the Ark of the Covenant on, an, on a cart that had never been used before, a new cart built for that purpose. And then, of course, uh, <laughs> of course, it was to be pulled by two cows who had never pulled a cart before, who had just given birth to calves. Obviously, right? This is, DHL has this process written down somewhere in its policies. We're told in, second, in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 12, how, how somewhat miraculously, from what I understand about, about cows pulling carts based on, on the Little House and the Prairie books, it's somewhat miraculous that these two cows take off and, and they go from the Philistines straight to, straight to the Israelites. They don't, they just do it. And so that's like somewhat miraculous, right? According to... Lori Ingalls Wilder. And they, they go straight to this town called Beth Shemesh. They go straight to Beth Shemesh, and the people of Beth Shemesh, they throw a big party. They, they see the ark of God, and they, they are delighted because God's presence is now back among God's people, right? This is great news. And in their partying, in their partying, in their celebration over it, 75 men from Beth Shemesh open the lid on the, on the Ark of the Covenant. And they, they took a peek inside. And you have to wonder, did they taste the manna? Did they, what did they see? It's kind of an interesting, we don't get any details about it. But we do get the details that every one of those 75 fell dead. Not immediately, but eventually they all fell dead. And, and so the people of Beth Shemesh say, you know what? This isn't worth it. Let's not have this thing around anymore. And, and so we read what happened in chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. It says, Who is able, these are the people of Beth who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, they cried out. Where can we send the ark from here? So they sent messengers to the people at uh, Kiriath-Jerim. And they told them, the Philistines have returned the Ark of the Lord. Come here and get it. <laughs> It'll be great, I promise. Uh, so the people of Kiriath-Jerim, they, they were fine with it. They came and they got the Ark. And, and they took it to the house of, of a prominent person there uh, whose name is Abinadab. Abinadab, and it sat in Abinadab's house for 20 years, and there weren't major problems, but through all that time, through those 20 years, the, the end of 1 Samuel chapter 6 and the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 7 are a little, uh, little vague, but it appears as though for 20 years, the people felt abandoned by God. For 20 years, Eli has been dead now, he died when the ark was stolen. And for 20 years, there's been kind of a vacuum of leadership. 
there hasn't been anybody being a judge or a priest or there, there's just been time has passed and the people have felt abandoned by God. And so in, in the beginning of chapter seven of first Samuel, Samuel reappears. He's just sort of, he's just there all of the sudden. He hasn't, there's no explanation of where he's been, what he's been doing. He's just there. And he gathers the people together. And, and so we can read about what Samuel, Samuel did in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. It says, when Samuel, Then Samuel said to all the people of Israel, If you want to return to the Lord with all your hearts, get rid of your foreign gods and your images of Ashereth. Turn your hearts to the Lord and obey him alone. Then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites got rid of the images of Baal and Ashereth and worshipped only the Lord. Baal and Ashereth are gods of the Philistines that throughout this period of Old Testament history are just a trap to the nation of Israel. Over and over again, their failure is, is in worshiping the Baals and the Ashtoreth. They, they go back to Baal and back to Ashtoreth over and over again during this period of history. And so this is a point at which a ruler comes to the fore, and this happens over and over again. A ruler comes to the fore and says, stop worshiping these false gods. <laughs> stop it and worship the Lord alone. And so Samuel gathered all the people together in a city called Mishpah. Mizpah, Mizpah, excuse me. And they had it, this huge worship, worship service. They got together and they confessed their sins. Uh, and and they, they sought God. And they asked for God's help. And it can't be underestimated how important those actions are. Of, of repenting of deciding that they're going, they're admitting that they've been doing things that have kept them from God. They admit, they admit, they say with their own mouths, we have been doing these things. This is what confession is. We have been doing these things, and they have separated us from God. So they confessed, and, and they worship God, and they ask God for help. And, uh, and the Philistines catch wind of this. It's been 20 years since the Philistines had stolen the Ark of the Covenant. And during this period of time, the Israelites had felt abandoned by God, which probably means that they hadn't had a lot of victories in battle. It probably means that they had had a hard time at the hands of the Philistines. The Philistines had been taken back territory that the Israelites had promised to them by God. And so the Philistines heard that all of Israel was gathered at Mizpah, and, and the Philistines thought, well, that's convenient. Let's go there and kill all the Israelites. Uh, so much for all this traveling around to their different little towns, they've all gathered together. We can just go take care of them all at once. The Philistines were, were delighted. <laughs> this was a gift that the Israelites had given them to gather all in one place so that they, and to the Philistines, it didn't matter what the Israelites were doing, right? They, they were, I mean, remember that time that it didn't matter that 
the Israelites were worshiping their God because remember that time that the Israelites brought their God box to the battlefield and we stole that too? The, the, the Philistines were completely unafraid of all of the gathered Israelites. And so they come just confident, confident that they are going to destroy the Israelites. And, and so they come, they show up, and right as the, the worship service is ending, right as the worship service is ending, and things went differently this time. The Israelites started, started doing pretty well in battle. And pretty soon, the Philistines weren't just not doing well in battle, but they were running. And the Israelites chased them. And, and God gave the Israelites a great victory in battle. And, and the people came together and they gave credit to God for this great victory. Okay, I'm ready to, to give just a little bit of application to this message. I'm going to continue through the story a little bit, but right now I, I just I got to jump out and give a little bit of, of application. It's really interesting to me the contrast between the time that the Israelites carried the Ark of the Covenant into battle and it didn't go well for them, and the time that the Israelites were all gathered together to worship God and the, the Philistines came and attacked and it did go well for the people of God. And th this really serves to highlight uh, what I, I really think is true. That, and, and we see over and over in Scripture that our God refuses to be a good luck charm. Our God refuses to be a good luck charm for us. It, this is just evident over and over again in Scripture that God is not interested in us acting in a certain way so that we will be blessed. That our God, the Bible is not a book of spells that teaches us the way to pray, the words and the order in which to say the words to, to be blessed or to receive something good from God. That is just not what the living God, the God of Israel, the God of Jacob, the God of Jesus is ever about. God does not want to be controlled. God does not want you to have some way of twisting God's arm to make things good for you. And so, God allows us to experience his presence. He invites us to, to ask for the things we want. God, God invites us to, to let our requests be no, made known to him. But this idea that, that the people of Israel have, that if we, just, if we just have the right object at the right place, then everything will be okay for us. Uh, it gets them in trouble over and over again. For the next 500 years, the people will be saying, we've got the Ark of the Covenant. We've got God's presence. They build a temple made out of stone in Jerusalem. They say, we've got the temple in Jerusalem. And then about 600 years after this event, the temple is destroyed. Even the Ark of the Covenant at that point is, is probably burned up, and the, the, the gold is stolen and taken to Babylon. And the people, the people are they're confounded. They have no idea how it could happen. They, they had all of the good luck charms put together, and somehow God didn't 
give them the victory they thought the good luck charms would give them. But if we, if we think about then what the people are doing in the instance when Samuel is with them, leading them in worship, and, and, the, Israel, and the Philistines come and attack, it, it's because they aren't just trusting in that you know, the Jesus fish on the back of their car from getting them a parking ticket. They are personally, actively, individually seeking God in their own lives. This is the amazing thing that Jesus undid when when he died on the cross. Because, as I mentioned, the Israelites will go on and they'll build a temple made out of stone in Jerusalem. And it'll be just like the tabernacle with a big outside court and smaller courts and a, and a holy place and a most holy place, the, the Holy of Holies. And they'll put a replica of the Ark of the Covenant that was original in that place. And it'll, it'll have stone on three sides and a huge curtain on the, on the fourth side. And only once a year will anybody ever enter it. And this, the, the Bible tells us that when Jesus breathed his last on the cross, that that curtain that separated the most holy place, the place where God's presence sat physically on earth, that that curtain was torn from top to bottom. And it symbolizes this idea that God's presence is no longer bound to a place within a place within a place within a place in a city And then 50 days later, God does this miraculous thing on Pentecost after Jesus was uh, raised from the dead. 50 days after that, God does this amazing thing where, where he pours out his Holy Spirit, not in a place, not on a box, but in the hearts of human beings. And the Holy of Holies becomes the human heart where God's presence is pleased to dwell. This is, is sort of shocking. <laughs> this is sort of shocking that the very presence of God that was so frightening in the Old Testament that they put a rope around the guy's ankle as he went into it and bells around his, his skirts, that same presence is available to, it is here. It is here with us now, working in us. It's shocking. Uh, And still, still, God refuses to be our good luck charm. And even though God is present in your heart. Uh, I made the silly joke about you, you, you can still get a parking ticket with a Jesus fish on the back of your car, right? <laughs> but, but God refuses to deliver us from, from the consequences of our poor decisions, too. Um, it, we can't be too shaken when, when God allows us to, to suffer the consequences of our own actions, right? 
it, it means that, that we can't control God and we can't get, we can't say the right words in the right order to get the miracle that we want. It, it means that there, there is no spell for, for conjuring rain in a drought. The Bible just, it left that part out, I guess. But God continues to invite us to voice our needs, to tell him our wants. God continues to, to listen. And, and some of the most amazing people that we meet in this life end up being those who pray for a lifetime for a miracle they never see. Isn't that sort of shocking? That so many people that are waiting on God, at the same time they're able to see the ways that God is faithful while they wait. Right? They're able to see the hand of God being generous and kind to them, even, even while that big thing is hanging out there and they're, they're just wishing that God would act in that, that circumstance, in that situation. Well, that, that brings me back to, to 1 Samuel 7. In 1 Samuel 7, verse 12, we, the Israelites have had great, great fortune in battle. The Philistines are running Lots of them have, have been killed and taken care of. And in, in 1 Samuel seven twelve we read, Samuel then took a large stone and placed it between the towns of Mizpah and Jeshana. He named it Ebenezer, which means the stone of help. For he said, up to this point, the Lord has helped us. Uh, the rest of 1 Samuel 7 is a summary of what a great leader Samuel turns out to be. How he becomes a judge, he travels around, he brings justice, he, he speaks on behalf of God, and he does great things. But I am really, I'm really enamored with this idea of the Ebenezer, the stone of remembrance. Um, I love how Samuel says, up to this point, up to this point, the Lord has helped us. It's so unassuming. <laughs> it's so faithful. It recognizes what God has done up to now. And then he, he places it physically. He places it physically so he won't forget. It, almost admitting, almost admitting, almost like thinking there's a chance that tomorrow I won't, it won't be so obvious how God has been faithful. So he, he places the stone saying, up to this point, up to now, God has been faithful. My friend Randy likes to say, faith needs a memory. Our, our faith is often it requires us to look back sometimes and remember at that point God was faithful to me. So,
it's going to be a really hot, miserable week, and you're going to be stuck inside in front of your air conditioner a lot. Uh, I, I would encourage you to, to consider and take some time maybe this week to do some holy remembering, to, to consider the times when God has been good to you. Maybe, maybe this would be a great, great time, a great week to write some thoughts down about how God has been faithful to you. I bet, I bet if you write it down, your kids would love to, to have it someday. <laughs> uh, if, if you would write down some thoughts about how God has been faithful to you, you might need to pull it out in a couple of weeks or in a couple of years. Maybe, maybe you have items around you that remind you of God's goodness and God's faithfulness that could just be, be an Ebenezer. Maybe you have in your nightstand at home a rock that you took home one time from a retreat center or from a worship service. And it reminds you when you see it. Yeah, remember that one? God was good. Up to then, God had been faithful. Maybe... Maybe you have a keychain that holds the name of someone precious to you, reminds you of how, up to that point, God had been faithful. God continues to be faithful. Uh, many of us wear rings that remind us of the love that God has placed in our lives. If, if we pause to think about it, we are surrounded by Ebenezers. And I'd challenge you this week to, to just stop and take a look. You are, you are surrounded. You are surrounded by evidence after evidence after proof after proof of God's faithfulness to you up to now. And so... Maybe this week would be a time to catalog, to write down some of the stories, some of the reasons, some of the whys that you have that Ebenezer hanging around. And up to that point, God was faithful. And maybe this week, for some, is a week to, to just realize, I need to stop. Stop pulling around the lucky charms and, and just seek God. I need to, I need to stop, stop thinking that because of that outward sign that I put on, that God, does, God should be faithful to me. And just decide this week, because I am going to seek God. I am going to seek God. And I'm going to get to see his faithfulness to me in all kinds of ways. Will you stand with me and uh, let me pray for you? After I pray, Becca is going to come and give us some instructions. Let me pray that uh, you would see the Ebenezers that all, are all around you, that you would be reminded of God's faithfulness, and that you would continue to seek God with all of you to see his faithful hand at work. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we love you. We have come into this dangerous place, this place of your presence. Amazingly, God, you are so generous 
with your presence. You, you are everywhere. <laughs> and, and we come to this place to set aside time to, to specifically seek you, to worship you, to hear from your word. And amazingly and faithfully, Lord, you speak to us. You inspire us by your Holy Spirit. God, we, we thank you. We thank you that you, you are so faithfully present. When things are difficult and hard, God, you are present. When we are rejoicing and everything is great, you are with us. We will remember, Lord. We will remember your faithfulness. So I pray for my brothers and sisters who maybe need to hear the word and see from the example of the Israelites, who maybe have been counting on their ability to twist your arm, God, through these outward things that are not their heart seeking you. I pray, Lord, that you would challenge us and draw us to seek you with our whole hearts. We give up things that we hold on to, our attempts to control you, God. We give up trying to say the right words in the right order to get what we want. We simply, humbly come to your presence, willing to take what you give us to receive from your hand. And Lord, we, we pray that as this week goes by, we will, we will continue, God. We will continue to see evidence of your faithfulness all around us. That Ebenezer after Ebenezer will appear before our eyes. Lord, we know there are, there are some houses that are about to get named in this congregation. There are, there are children who are going to receive another name. There are empty places in our lives that are also reminders of your faithfulness. The times that you've been with us through the hardest moments, God. I pray for my brothers and sisters as they catalog the memories they have of your blessings. Lord, that you would just bless them with hope. Hope that you will continue to work and continue to move. Let us, Lord, be content to say, up to now, you have been faithful. But Lord, let us also have hearts filled with hope. Let us be, be anticipating the good things that you are about to do in our midst, Lord. Oh God, we love you. We thank you for your faithfulness and your kindness to us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.